0: My guest today is Professor Paul Novosad, who is Associate Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College. He examines why poor countries have remained poor so long and what policy interventions can help improve people's lives in developing countries. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Did I pronounce your last
1: name correctly? I don't even know what you said. It's Novosad. Novosad, Okay, Close close enough, I'm sure.
0: So, so, you have a lot of uh, papers we want to go through, um, but I want to start with one of your later papers, COVID mortality in India, national survey data and health facility deaths. Uh, you see, it's apparent that the official number of COVID-19 cases that have accumulated in India is substantially underestimated. But the question is, by how much? in an independent survey of 137,000 adults recorded how many people died from severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 related causes yeah. examining the data for all cause mortality for for the years spanning 2020 to 2021 you say revealed 26 to 29% excess mortality so extrapolating to the indian population which i suppose is about 1.4 billion this equates to the deaths of more than 3.2 million people, with a majority occurring during April to June 2021. So this is uh, um, obviously a very interesting topic for me, Paul. I, I um, grew up in India and in South India. My parents still live in the South Indian state of Kerala. And I've been you know, sort of giving track of numbers. None of the numbers actually make sense to me. <laughs> uh, I, I lost my aunt and my niece uh, in this COVID episode. Um, I'm very sorry. Uh, uh, you know, last two years. So, what India has reported uh, appears to be um, not really reality, right? So, uh, excess death, excess mortality is a pretty good measure, I would imagine, in the absence of any other shocks, right? So, you want to talk a bit, bit about the paper and the data that you're using.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm very sorry to hear about um, the relatives that you lost. Uh, I think, I mean, everyone who knows people in India knows that they've experienced this, which to, to, to some extent speaks to speaks to the catastrophe that this has been, which which is what our paper shows. Um, counting counting COVID deaths is very challenging everywhere because it's not it's not clear even if you have all the full information it's not clear whether someone has died of COVID often very elderly people are dying and they have multiple conditions and they die when they have COVID and is it COVID which kills them or is it one of the other conditions which kills them and maybe COVID is a factor in that death it's hard to know how to count and then particularly in the uh, early days of the pandemic and kind of throughout the pandemic in India there's been a shortage of testing and so many people are dying and we they die of respiratory illness but we don't have an official COVID test. This does not enter into the official COVID statistics, right? If someone dies at home of respiratory illness during a COVID outbreak, this is not recorded by officials. Official statistics typically count uh, deaths of people who have positive COVID tests. So there's there is significant undercounting there where people are not tested, and there's maybe a little bit of overcounting in some cases where the COVID was incidental, and that's that's very hard to very hard to determine. So excess mortality is, I mean, there there are many different ways to solve this problem. Uh, Excess mortality is one, I think, clever way to get around the problem where you just look at how many people die on any given day or on any given week. And if you look over a long enough period, that number tends to be relatively stable. The number, The proportion of people dying in any week in 2017 looks pretty similar to 2018, looks pretty similar to 2019. And we can look at what happens in 2020 and when COVID outbreaks are happening, the total number of deaths shoots up a lot. And we have much better data on the total number of deaths than on the COVID status of those people who are dying. Now, you don't know whether all those deaths are due to COVID or not. Many other things are happening. There are lockdowns. Uh, traffic deaths seem to go way down during uh, the during a pandemic period because um, you know, pe- people are locked down, people are at home. So they're not, they're not in traffic, people are not dying in traffic. On the other hand, uh, deaths from uh, maternal mortality is likely to go up if people are giving birth at home instead of giving birth in clinics. So all all these little things are kind of going in all directions. And so in some sense, excess mortality tells us the aggregate of what is happening due to the pandemic, even if it's not strictly due to COVID. Now, I think when most analysts look at the data They think those other things like traffic deaths and maternal mortality and chronic conditions not getting treated tend to kind of balance out and be relatively small Mm. relative to the amount of COVID deaths. It's like COVID is going to cause 1 million deaths and these other factors are going to be plus or minus 50,000 or 100,000. And so we we don't have a perfect answer, but most, most experts look at the data and infer excess mortality is largely consisting of COVID deaths. and So that's what we did in this paper is we found as many sources of data as we could that would allow us to measure total excess mortality. It's it's pretty much impossible to measure uh, deaths confirmed to COVID uh, in India because so many of those deaths are happening to people who never even got a chance to never even got a chance to get a
0: test. Yeah I'm very attracted to this measure uh, Paul, Uh, excess mortality. So We had one shock, and we're not aware of any other shock happening simultaneously. And so if you take a baseline measurement, and you say X people die every year, and the shock happens, we can take another measurement. And it is sort of intuitive to say the difference is related to the shock. Uh, now you mentioned a couple of things. One is the the traffic accidents, of people you know locked up and not driving as much, so that goes that actually increases uh, the 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 potential mortality due to COVID. Uh, and then the maternal uh, effects, uh, people not able to get to the hospital for um, for births and so on, that decreases possibly the. But those appear to be secondary effects in the in the grand scheme of millions of deaths that we see in the excess deaths, right? I think
1: I think that's right, and we can think of many other things which maybe have gone up or down due to the lockdowns and the response. I mean, everything in society changed around around these outbreaks. But uh, in terms of things which directly cause deaths, it's it seems to me that all the other changes are, uh, as you say, small small relative to the amount of deaths caused directly by COVID.
0: So, so, what's the conclusion of the paper? So, I have seen anywhere from 3 million to 6 million excess deaths. Um, I don't know where WHO came out on this. Uh, I know that the Modi government is, uh, um, I don't know what the right term is, stopping or, or slowing down the WHO report worldwide report that's right. so so they did uh, your data come out on this so we
1: we estimated um I'm gonna to have to look at the article to see, to tell you what the headline number was. I know I know it's in the three to four million range. I can't tell yeah, you it's if it's so I guess yeah we 3.2 wrote three point two and it says three point one to three point four but like look this is this is not that precise. We aim to get it within an order of magnitude, right so it's I think it's evidently not the half a million, which is what official statistics show. <laughs> and you really can't, you, you, it's its kind of impossible to believe those statistics because you know that many people are dying without getting tested, right? So the 0.5 million has to be too small. Uh, as you say, people are coming up with three, people are coming up with six. There are several other studies. There's a study by um, Sandefur and Subramanian. There's a study by, um, uh, I think it's Milani and Soman who also use different sources of data and everyone's finding numbers, looking at excess mortality. It's, it's kind of neat because people are looking at this with different survey instruments, different methods, different modeling approaches and very consistently finding in this three to 6 million range. Now, is it three? Is it six? I mean, those, those are important differences. Uh, I think it's, that may be within the margin of error, right? We talk a lot about statistical error in our paper, but there's also model error and, I, I don't think it's going to be possible to say at this point whether it's um, whether it's you know on the low end or the high end, but it's clearly. I, I think it's very hard to argue that it's not in the millions, which is to say that it's not a catastrophe.
0: Yeah, so three to six million um, with a denominator of one point four billion, the grand scheme of things um, that sort of get lost in the noise, so to speak. But we are talking about excess deaths. We are talking about a shock. Uh, to the system, and it is far in excess of the half a million or whatever the government is reporting. So that is, that is the 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 most important thing, right? I mean, you know, I wondered. I mean, this is not new research. I also wondered Paul, in the U.S. context, uh, in New York, for example, when the whole thing started, we had a lot of people dying in their homes yeah. um, and heart attacks and. I mean, these are all now known to be side effects of COVID infection to the older, older folks. So I don't know if our numbers are really true either.
1: Well, I think I think in the U.S. I mean, you've had you've had the same sources of data, right? People have used excess mortality in the U.S. as well. Um, I don't I don't remember what the exact numbers are now from New York, but I think we have very good accounting for the total number of deaths in the United States. So excess mortality, I think, is very. Straightforward to calculate the CDC publishes weekly statistics of deaths, certainly not all of them will be certified as COVID, but my inclination is to think that the, you know, I don't know what the top line numbers are for the United States, but I would guess that those are pretty, pretty reliable, particularly, particularly for the first waves. Yeah. It's been like really widely studied.
0: Yeah, so I remember, um, so if we take this as sort of the, you know, the expectation in terms of excess deaths the Indian mortality due to COVID appears to be very similar to other countries like Brazil, or I think you mentioned Colombia and other, other countries. Uh, and so that appears to be a fairly acceptable hypothesis here, right? Uh, in terms of the number, in terms of the fatality in, in, rate? In terms of mortality, in terms of mortality, you know, uh, per million, po- million population, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, India in terms of, so there's two, two things you can ask is when is your mortality rate conditional on getting infected? And that's kind of a question about the quality of the healthcare system and the extent of underlying conditions that you have. And actually India's, uh, fatality rates conditional on, on being infected. We have a a separate paper on this seem to be fairly similar to those in other people's country in, in other countries. So it wasn't the case, you know, many people worried that because of the Indian health system, at least for the first wave, actually, I should I should I should hold on this because we haven't done this for the second wave. And the second wave was where you had um, shortages of oxygen in hospitals, and that's that's the wave where the the mortality rate may have been quite a bit higher. But I think what you're talking about is the number of deaths per million people. And so this is a combination of the quality of care for people who get infected, and then just the ability of society to prevent infections from taking place. And at that level. Um, my recollection is that India, Brazil, and the United States are around around the top of the list in terms of the the countries which were least effective in controlling in controlling the pandemic. Or, or we don't know. We don't know if it's policy effectiveness or if it's other factors that cause things to be particularly bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that is that is my my re- recollection. Those numbers aren't aren't coming uh, straight. I, I those, those aren't from our paper, so I I say that with uh, with a low degree of
0: confidence. Yeah, so other other uh, thing that I noticed here is that you say here with a majority of mortality occurring during April to June 2021, uh, that's a bit of a surprise to me. So this is sort of a second wave, isn't it? Yeah, yeah.
1: It, uh, so it's uh, I guess there's. it's a surprise in the sense of it's not clear ex-ante why that would have been the case, but I think... Knowing people who've experienced it, it's not surprising, right? The anecdotes of the second wave were were much worse. The first wave, the, the first wave had had its share of crises, but the second wave was the wave where hospitals were running out of oxygen, where uh, crematoriums were running 24 hours a day and were, were not were basically not able to serve the number of people who needed them, right? So I think I think that uh, that result fits with the experience of people during the pandemic. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of an interesting question why the second wave was was so much worse. Um, we could we could conjecture that not as much was done to prevent it, right? The first wave featured the national lockdown. Everyone was very um, was, you know, very, very cautious. there were There were missteps but at the same time for the most part, um, non-pharmaceutical interventions were in place. And then over the course of the next year, I think, some complacency came in, and people thought, "Okay, we've endured COVID. We've seen it. That was it. Lots of people are vaccinated now. It's going. It's going to be okay." And um, you know, large gatherings came back. There were mass religious events, and there was basically very, very little done to mitigate the, the second wave of the pandemic. And I think it was the Delta wave, if I recall correctly, which was um, you know more, more virulent and more deadly than the prior wave as well. So it was kind of a combination of. Uh, I think a false belief that everything was fine and no mitigation steps needed to take place with a worse worse version of the virus that it, it and, and when, when one of these waves comes, it just strikes so quickly that uh, by the time the crisis
0: is in place, it's too late to respond. Mm. As you well know, there is sort of a class uh, caste matrix <laughs> uh, when you think about India. On the x-axis, you have the sort of the religious caste on the y-axis, you have the economic class. So it is a, it is a function of what percentage of those um, people are affected in the first wave and the second wave. I would imagine also, right? Uh, there seems to
1: be some interesting patterns in terms of who was affected during which wave. I agree. I'm, I I haven't I haven't actually seen. And, and not that I'm sure it's out there, I just haven't looked into it. I haven't seen a lot of um, papers trying to kind of decompose the different income, class, and caste dimensions of the, of the pandemic. I think that would be really interesting interesting to understand. I'm sure there are people working on it.
0: Yeah. So, so I want to go into another topic um, intergenerational mobility in India, new methods and estimates across time, space, and communities, you say. <laughs> So so we study intergenerational mobility in India over time across groups and across space. We show that the modern set of rank-based mobility measures can be at best partially identified with education data. We develop a new measure of upward mobility that works well under data constraints common in developing countries. We find that intergenerational mobility in India has been constant and low since before liberalization. Yeah, so without knowing, um, I mean, I've been in this country for half my life and I haven't really (laughs) studied a lot of data. It is a bit of a surprise to me, uh, this conclusion, that um, intergenerational mobility in India has been constant and low since before liberalization. So, So what's the data that you're using here? so
1: let me let me uh, back up a step and talk about what we mean by intergenerational mobility because this is this is a this kind of uh, technical language to talk about a specific economic concept which, when people normally think about upward mobility, may not be the first thing that comes to mind. So we're not first, let me tell you what we're not talking about. We're not talking about living standards, right? Or we're, we're basically studying in this paper birth cohorts from roughly the 1950 birth cohort to the 1990 birth cohort. And we think of like the late 80s, early 90s as the big economic, the period of policy change in India, where it goes from kind of very statist, centrally planned Neuruvian sort of economy to a more liberal capitalist economy. My exactly, exactly. Uh, and so we're, we're very interested in... Um, You know, it's in that episode kind of cuts our birth cohorts right in the middle, and that our youngest generation is growing up in the reform era, going to school in the reform era, and will be seeking jobs in the reform era. And so it's kind of a nice, a nice period to study. Indian growth has been phenomenal. It's been one of the great growth stories of human history. And in every social class, people are much better off in material standards than their parents. Like you're much more likely to have clean water, to have uh, your kids survive to age 5 like you name it practically any dimension that you can think of if you're upper caste if you're lower caste whatever your religion is you're on average expected to be much better than your parents so if you think of if you think of upward mobility in that sense on average like there has been a rising tide it has lifted all boats that's that's unmistakable when economists talk about intergenerational mobility they're talking about a different concept from I mean, it's it's it, at least as as we talk about it, it's a it's a different concept, which captures the idea of equality of opportunity. It captures the idea of who has access to the best opportunities in society. And there's there's a nice metaphor from one of the seminal papers on mobility by Gary Solon, where he says, imagine two societies, which have exactly the same income distributions, but in one of those societies a child who's born to a poor parent is sure to stay poor. Whereas in the other society, a child who's born to a poor parent is very likely to end up at the median, right? It's gonna gonna catch up, right? Mm So identical societies in terms of living standards, clean water and everything, but in one of them, your social status is totally fixed. If you start poor, you're going to stay poor. And in the other one, it's just constantly churning. Everyone has an opportunity to succeed. Hmm. Okay, so intuitively, we—I think most people gravitate toward the second one, right? We want people to be able to like strive, and for high ability people to be successful, and for people who work harder to be successful. And in the first in the first society, even if your average living standards are the same, we have the sense that there's something missing when there's no there's no opportunity to move up in relative terms. So that's the concept that we're after in India. And now you can now you can understand how. You could have a period of phenomenal growth, which is what India has experienced over the last four years. Living standards are going up, but what we want to know is, can you go up in relative terms? If you grow up as a lower caste person at the bottom of the social pyramid, your kids will be better off than you. That's that's very likely to be the case given India's average growth story. You know, it's not it's not universal, but that's generally true. will they still be at the bottom of the social pyramid right will they be better off but still and and this is this is i think a very relevant uh element of human well-being is we don't only care about we do care about like it's it's wonderful that more people have clean water enough food to eat and um you know more comfortable life less less odious workplaces but if you're kind of stepped on and looked down by all your neighbors, and you know that your children will be as well, I think there's a, there's a real element of deprivation that, that we should care about. So that's that's the concept that we aim to measure. And an easy way to think about it, or the, the concept that we use in our paper is, imagine a person who's born in the bottom half of the socioeconomic distribution. What average percent, what percentile do we expect them to get to and in a in a society with absolute equality of opportunity it only comes down to ability and drive and motivation and effort and yeah. that number would be 50 right everyone on average would like you can start out poor but we expect you to get to the average because you have the same opportunities as everybody else in a society with zero mobility that answer would be 25 right you start in the bottom 50 percent and you're going to end up exactly where you started. On average, that's going to be at the 25th percentile. So that's that's the idea that we're trying to capture.
0: Yeah, I really like this concept, Paul. Um, anecdotally, I would say I can see myself. Um, so my grandfather was a uh, you know, high school headmaster. My dad is a professor of engineering. And the only reason I'm here is because of the initial conditions Afforded to me uh, given good initial conditions even not so smart people can make it uh, but given bad initial conditions is really difficult uh to to move and and that's really that's really what you're trying to
1: say here right that's that's exactly right and i think it's a really interesting measure to look at whether a society is rich or poor is does it create opportunities for people whose parents didn't have those opportunities. And when you look across the world, you find uh, you know perhaps a not surprising result that in um, you know the Nordic countries in Sweden, Finland, and Norway, there's very high intergenerational mobility. Starting out poor isn't that consequential for where you end up. The United States is, I think the among the worst out of the advanced countries. And what we found for India, is that India is about as far behind the United States as the United States is behind Denmark. Wow. And so and and that upward mobility in a rank sense has not changed between I don't know if I should say pre-industrial but pre-liberalization India, the India of the 1950s and the India of the 1990s, that hasn't changed. And I think I think that's a striking and a damning fact about Indian development. Because when we think of, certainly when we think of India going back sufficient a sufficient period of time, you have the caste system, which is really a system that very explicitly prohibits upward mobility, right? Your occupation, okay. there's, there's a strong social norm that your occupation should be the same as your children's occupation. If you even have aspirations to achieve a higher status occupation, that's, that's something to be frowned upon, and it's it's disruptive of the social order. And there's there's a narrative that modern India is abandoning abandoning those old rules, and it's a new free market, uh, wild, uh, churning, you know, marketplace where anyone who tries hard enough can succeed. And at least for the 1980 to 1989 birth cohort, which is the youngest birth cohort that we look at we find you don't you don't actually see such an improvement in upward mobility in fact you see no no average difference at all.
0: yeah it's a really important point um, so, so a couple of things that I want to touch on one is um, you already mentioned here in the paper so you, we have the scheduled class scheduled tribe population that are constitutionally protected. Given you know, is a bit like um, what we call here um, U.S. Uh, we have similar thing in the U.S. Yeah. You mean affirmative action? Uh, affirmative action, yeah. So, yeah. so uh, those um, uh, sectors uh, seem to have done well, but India is a mishmash of religions, classes, and uh, and all sorts of things. So. And you note here, which is quite interesting to me. Uh, so, if you look at the SCST population, because of the um, the economics afforded to them or the or the policy afforded to them, there is high mobility in that area. But then you look at Muslims, for example. India has two hundred million Muslims. It's the third largest Muslim country in the world. <laughs> uh, where you we see that uh, the mobility is not mobility is actually declining, right? Over the last 30, 40 years.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I, I said earlier that there's no change in overall mobility. But when we break that up, we find that scheduled casts indeed do have substantial increases in mobility and have closed. Um, I don't now recall whether it's a half or two-thirds, but like a substantial share of the upward mobility gap between between scheduled casts and forward casts has been closed. Uh, the reason that doesn't result in a change overall is that Muslims have lost ground in terms of upward mobility, almost as much as scheduled castes have gained. So I I would say we found suggestive evidence that affirmative action has been important for scheduled castes. There are many reasons to think it has been. There are a lot of programs that uh, reserve slots for scheduled castes in government, in politics, in uh, schools. And there there are virtually no programs like that for Muslims. Um, and there's also been, I think, a strong social movement uh, to kind of put down caste barriers. Like, I think if you're very casteist in India, there's now kind of a social norm against against this kind of thing. Like, there's this idea that this is kind of a retrograde attitude. And even though virtually everyone still practices it in marriage, <laughs> it's 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 at least. Um, it's at least something that you don't do as openly, or you maybe like feel a little badly about talking about right. So there, there has been this big social movement to kind of stop putting down the scheduled castes. And I, I think that uh it's still, you know, it's still very difficult to be a lower caste person in. You still face a great deal of discrimination. I think there has been this social movement uh and and this set of policies aiming to to close to close the gap and kind of end end the you know, high degree of caste inequality and caste discrimination. Um, there, there's there been nothing like this for Muslims. And if anything, I think we've seen the opposite in the sense that it's become, particularly over the last uh, 10 years, I think, much more socially acceptable to express uh, maybe racist is the wrong word, but kind of the the sorts of attitudes historically associated with racism in the United States, like, Oh, these people are poor because they have the wrong attitude and they don't try hard enough. And, you know, they send their kids to madrasas or whatever. And it's like, it's, it's not, it's not the fault of the state. It's not the fault of society. Like it's, it's their own fault. And, you know, maybe it's even better that things, that things are that way. I think this, I think, um, you know, we see, a, you know, and, and there's a there's a political motivation behind this. And uh, it's just kind of a, a disturbing increasing trend in India. And uh, what's, what's kind of worth noting in our paper is that we use data from 2012, which is entirely before the Modi era. So we are, we're talking about a period which has largely been Congress governments, right, The not the I guess the 1970 to 2010 is roughly where you can look at our time series. So even in that time period, Muslims have been substantially losing ground in upward mobility. And uh, we haven't haven't updated the paper, but I would would conjecture that things have not improved for them in the last 10 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've seen this, Paul. Economists had, you know, sort of a a racist index for the 200 countries. And India is at the bottom of that. that Bottom meaning the worst? the worst. Uh, India is the most racist country in the world. Our last president might have gotten the US pretty close as well, but uh, I don't know the the latest data, but uh, so India has always been uh, very racist and very divided. It is like uh, Europe put into one country uh, and worse. And so I mean, the idea about the Muslims in India is that, you know, like I said before, it's the third largest Muslim country in the world. It's very large population. Uh, I had great, uh, great hope that cricket, you know, the game of cricket will integrate India. That hasn't happened. Um, And so India seems to be slipping, slipping down a path that appears to be less desirable. What What is your take on where we are today?
1: I mean, this is, this is outside my, my area of expertise. <laughs> I generally, generally sympathize with the things, with the things that you're saying, you know, I think, I think that uh, the narrative that people have about their society and the narrative that politicians present to people about their society does have very real effects on, on socioeconomic outcomes. And you know, I think you only have to look at the United States to look at the long run costs of building a narrative of like racial superiority and justifying racial inequality, which is kind of what what the US chose to do in the, obviously the the, um, pre-Civil War period, but also in the post-Civil War era, there's this sense among uh, US whites with political power in much of the country that it was important to keep black people down and keep that gap from closing and I think this idea was just fundamentally wrong. I don't think whites are better off as a result of having, having oppressed uh, black Americans for, you know, so many centuries. I, like you look at the cleavages that are tearing our country apart today. And uh, I just think we made a terrible mistake then. And I think uh, people who want India to move in this direction of like emphasizing differences between groups and, um you know, preventing preventing Muslim upward mobility. I think this is I think this is really a poor choice. I think having Muslims be well integrated with equal opportunities to everyone else is actually going to be better for everybody, even for the even for the non-Muslims. I think uh policies that drive cleavages between these groups are very short-sighted. And I think I think ultimately they're very counter they're very counterproductive. I don't think they make the um the higher status group better off in the long run because they just create social discord and it's really when when you have a lot of social discord it's very hard to for you know the the good things about people working together and building things together everything's just much much harder to do
0: yeah i mean i'm biased about this i'm a free market economist and anytime you have segmentation you're going to get suboptimal outcome and so if policymakers you know, sort of nourishing segmentation is going to put the country down. And, you know, in the 70-year history of India, that has been the case most of the time, except perhaps between 1990 and 2002 or something along those lines, right? So it is it is a pretty um, dangerous situation for the country right now, I think. Um, but I want to go into another paper, uh, which I found also very interesting. So, the long run development impacts of agricultural productivity gains, evidence from irrigation canals in India. You say, how and when do improvements in agricultural productivity translate into development and structural transformation? And extensive literature has addressed these questions dating back to the earliest days of development economy, economics. More importantly, a new literature has focused on generating well-identified empirical evidence in settings where high-quality microdata allows for a study of local shocks to productivity. And most of this literature has explicitly or implicitly assumed that labor movements across space are small, such that local productivity shocks drive within location movements of labor across sectors this may be a reasonable restriction you say for short-term analysis but long-term outcomes may be very different due to labor mobility yeah i'm I'm thinking back Paul, a little bit my uh, mom's um house was very close to a canal (laughs) oh fascinating (laughs) And, and, and my dad's house was not and you know we're talking about you know the 50s here um and I felt that, you know, near the canal, the development um, developments were more compared to away from the canal. So so, so what do you find in this data? That's, uh,
1: that's, a, that's fascinating. T- tell me a little more about what you mean, like, in your mother's region as you move yeah. away from the canal, it seemed like people were poorer, or you mean comparing your mother's
0: region to your father's region? Yeah, they were not poor because I think both... My mother and father had good initial conditions, so they were, you know, pretty well to do. But if I look at sort of the economics of the area around the canal, it appeared that it it was higher compared to away from the canal. I don't know if you if if you're finding that in the paper. You were finding probably the opposite of this, right? (laughs)
1: We, we don't find, we don't find much of a difference on, on average, but this is, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating question. Um, it's a, that, that, that anecdote in some sense does describe the idea that we're trying to, we're trying to get it in this paper. So um, the, this paper fits into a broader literature that tries to understand how countries become modern and rich and becoming modern and rich I think 100% of the time, or if not 100% of the time, 99% of the time involves becoming less agricultural, right? The US economy was 98% agriculture, agricultural in 1800 or something, and now it's about 2% agricultural. And You can look at that in terms of share of GDP or share of uh, workforce in any industry. In every country that has gotten rich, South Korea, South Africa, China, as India has gotten richer, this is what happens. Countries move people out of agriculture into the more modern sectors. And there's this deep question of whether you do that, whether that process begins in cities or whether that process begins in rural areas. And and one can think of reasons that it could happen both ways, right? If you have extremely productive cities with uh, extremely productive modern sectors, and you pull people out of agriculture and the agricultural sector shrinks because there's just more labor demand in the cities and you're paying higher wages and so it doesn't this kind of development process doesn't have to start in the agricultural economy but you can also imagine that there's, there's a generation of development economics theories which say um land productivity goes up there's more surplus from the land now that everyone is fed we we have time to start doing other things. So it frees labor up to go work in the manufacturing sector. People are richer and so they wanna buy goods from the manufacturing sector, which creates this uh, positive stimulus cycle and the manufacturing sector kind of grows that way. And so we look at at India's canals in the sense of answering this long run question of, we build a new canal to a village, agricultural productivity is gonna go up substantially in that village. Do we see this other form of development? Do we see the shrinkage of the regional agricultural sector? Do we see manufacturing firms start to pop up as a result? So that's that's the kind of motivating motivating story of this paper. Um, but but you find that that's not the case, right? We find that that's not the case. Well, but we find that that's not the case in a, in a very in a very specific kind of way. So. One of the key findings of this paper is that we don't see rural industry pop up. And this is, this is if, if we, we haven't talked about our rural roads paper, but this rural roads paper is kind of getting at this same idea of when we shock villages with this big uh, infrastructure connection, we're going to give you a road. Now, suddenly you're connected to external markets. And this question of whether industry will develop in villages has really been a central question in indian economic thinking since the beginning and you can go back to the ideas of gandhi who thought that like fundamentally india is about its villages and india should always be about its villages and what we should dream of is villages becoming more productive and developing small scale weaving operations or pottery operations so that every every village will like remain cute and agricultural with a little small little bit of small-scale industry in there and so you might You might expect, and this is when you read the policy documents around uh, people planning and building roads, there's this, I think, aspiration that villages will become centers of industry. Because I think everyone is afraid of mass urbanization, of people moving to cities. Uh, Cities feel like they can't keep up with the number of migrants coming in. Everyone has seen the slums and the the outskirts of cities growing with uh, the, the tens or hundreds of millions of migrant workers who travel each year and are kind of... They're needed in cities, but they're not welcomed in cities. So I think there's this strong desire among policymakers to see industrialization happen at the small scale inside villages. And in both of these papers, we find that 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 just doesn't happen. There are just too many. There's a reason we have cities. The reason we have cities is human beings are extremely productive when they're clustered close together. You have thick labor markets. You can share ideas with each other. You're very close to your suppliers. You have a big choice of many suppliers to use from. If I'm gonna run a furniture plant, I wanna be in or on the outskirts of a big urban center where I have a ton of suppliers, I have a ton of buyers, I can learn from other people. And this is kind of what we find that both of these really large shocks, we can detect substantial changes in the local economy, but they do not result in local industrialization so yeah, when, right. when, when canals get built um i'll, I'll finish in just a second i'll kind of tell you what 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 we do find happens which kind of completes this story when canals get built this big inflow of rural population but they continue doing agricultural work. So you kind of suck in people from the neighboring villages population density goes up but they're still doing agricultural work and then some nearby cities start to grow but you're not seeing villages popping up with like uh, boutique factories or something. And then when we build rural roads, you again find a very similar result, which is that people work a lot more in the non-farm sector, but it doesn't seem to be happening in villages. They're so using those roads to get to the towns where the where the non-farm jobs and doing and doing the work there.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful insight, Paul. So, so you're referring to other people, rural roads and local economic development. Nearly 1 billion people, you say, worldwide live in rural areas without access to national paved road networks. Um, But in general, what you're finding, so these things, canals, roads, um, they might be all motivated by good policy ideas, maybe, (laughs) maybe not good policy ideas, Maybe, maybe good intentions, let's say. For sure. But, it doesn't, you argue, translate into um, what 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 the expectations are. Um, it's it sort of, in some ways, uh, would you say, it constrains the the development in some way? So
1: let's let's be clear. We're not saying that these projects weren't effective or didn't create value. What, but they—they they, what we're definitely saying is that they didn't create rural industrialization. So people in villages with roads are very happy to have those roads. They have access to ambulance services. Sometimes they get onto—they get onto bus routes. They have easier, um, easier paths to uh, export their produce. And there's some there's some other research on rural roads suggesting su- su- f- finding evidence of kind of ability to produce more export oriented agriculture. These canals are more productive, and people's consumption is, on average, a little bit higher in these in these canal regions. Um, however, I think I think what the papers point to is this question of I think they point very strongly to the idea that development and economic growth comes from cities and is likely to come from cities. And when we want to talk, when we want to think about India becoming a first world nation, it's about making cities work better for the poor. It's about making cities work better for industry. That's that's where it's going to happen more so than uh, kind of bringing develop, development to people in place where they are. And as India gets richer, we should we should be providing better services. We should be providing roads and electricity and clean water to the villages where people are living. But I think it's, it's naive to expect uh, economic growth and development to be coming from those areas. People may continue to live in those areas, I think cities cities are the engines of, engines of growth. I think cities are where one area where um, Indian policy is really, really important. Cities, in a lot of ways, are not working for poor people. They're not building enough housing. They're not welcoming enough to migrants. And people are just living in terrible, terrible conditions to try to get access to these engines of upward mobility and... Um, I think our, our, a lot of people really love the idea of bringing development to the villages. Villages are really beautiful. They're wonder, wonderful to visit. You, you have this very idyllic sense of like, oh, this. W- imagine if people could live in a place like this and be wealthy as well. But I think de facto, we need to be paying more attention to what's happening in cities and recognizing that the best path out of poverty for people in rural areas is getting a house and a good job in a nearby city.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I think about this Paul as sort of a, uh, a, um, a incrementalistic view of policy. So, there, there is a high-speed rail project that was suggested in the southern state of Kerala. And people say, well, you know, why do you just get air-conditioned buses <laughs> on the roads? And these are the roads that that fail after every monsoon, you know, it just, you know, it's antiquated infrastructure. So bringing canals, bringing roads to um, villages are all good things, but it appears to be sort of an incremental thinking that would not, I would argue, transform India to the next next level. It will almost keep India where it used to be, where it is, I would say, last seventy seventy years.
1: I, so, I, don't, I don't know if I would agree that it would that it would like somehow set set India back. Um, but I
0: think I think it's it certainly would not be sufficient. Would not be sufficient. yeah, so I had to think a bit more than that. So so I want to finish up with another fascinating uh, paper that you have development research at high geographic resolution an analysis of nightlights, firms, and poverty in India using SHRUG open data platform. So the SHRUG is an open data platform describing multi-dimensional socioeconomic development across 600,000 villages and towns in India. This paper presents three illustrative analyses in uh, with high, uh, only possible high social data. So, so you're looking at uh, sort of, um, the nightlight, um, maps, and, and trying to figure out what's happening.
1: Yeah, so this, this paper, I think the big idea of this paper and um, the thing that I think was worth discussing here is just the idea of what kind of data we use to understand development. And then there's also something here about the uh, process through which researchers and government work with data and what can be done to improve that. Uh, historically, the only way one could understand the way the way Indian policymakers did understand what was happening in India was through sample surveys, like the National Sample Survey. You would send a, a team out to um, visit 20,000 households across like half of the districts, and you would like pick a small set of villages and visit 10 households in each village. And you could calculate poverty estimates, and you could calculate a broad sense of the distribution of poverty. Um, if you have a billion Indians and you're surveying, you know, 20 to 50,000 households you're not understanding what's going on at a very local level, right? An Indian, an Indian district is bigger than, bigger than some countries and you have a sample size of like 200 people in that district, right? So <laughs> that's, that's statistically going to be an unbiased measure of like the mean outcome in that district. It's not going to give you a very good understanding of what's going on within that district. But the reason we had that constraint was because it was very costly to collect data about how people are doing. Now in the digital age, the quantity of data being collected about individuals is just astronomically larger right every individual has dozens of interactions with government agencies over the course of a year each one of those interactions creates a data point in some database which sits on an archive in a government server somewhere and uh the granularity of this data is just incredible you have like many time slices of information about every single person in india at many points in time now this data is collected incidentally or another example would be um like cell phone data right your cell phone pings your location to the cell phone company every minute or something like that and so this is a data set which could describe the location of every single person in the country at a one minute one minute resolution right and if you compare it to like the nss migration surveys they're very difficult to collect and give you a very coarse view of what's happening with migration. And so the kind of background idea of our Shrug paper is, and really, really all of our research is kind of what one common theme of all of our research is using this new type of 21st century data and trying to learn from it. You, you face a challenge because the data, is when you, when you run a survey, you can ask exactly what you want and get exactly the information that you want. When you use administrative data, You get what was collected and then you need to do a bunch of work to figure out how to learn what you want to learn from someone who wasn't asking exactly the questions that you wanted that you wanted to ask. Yeah, Um, but uh, what we're doing is we're kind of exploring this space and say, what can we learn about policy using this new type of data and the shrug data platform is the framework for our work, trying to create as much open data as possible and make it available to the wider research community. because it's, it's, it's extremely costly in terms of labor hours to wrangle with one of these big administrative data sets and turn it into a usable research output. And so what we're trying to do is build something that functions, something like a Wikipedia for administrative data mm-hmm. so that any other researcher, if there's some researcher out there who's working with data on India's rural banking scheme, then they can take that data set, plug it into the shrug and immediately get access to all the universe of data that we've been working on. Mm. And similarly, we will take their data and
0: stick it into the shrug and then everyone else will be able to work on that as well. And you can apply some machine learning techniques on it too from prediction perspective. So you you say here that it confirms that nighttime lights are highly significant proxies for population employment per capita consumption and electrification. However, elasticities between nightlights and these variables are far lower in time series than cross section. So what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so uh, nightlights are one uh, another another form of data which uh, maps very well onto administrative data. These are these are um, digitized photos of the earth taken by satellite at night where you can see like cities appear as you know glowing lights because you you can see you can detect the night the the nighttime light emissions and they correlate very highly in the cross section with um, economic development measured in most ways, and you can take a look at most countries and the and in, in many countries like cities, cities which tend to be much better off than villages are much much brighter. And so, development economists have been interested in using these because they they give you one kilometer radius on a daily or monthly or annual basis. And if you have a country like India where the last public national sample survey was published in 2012, right, mm-hmm. we're we're 10 years since we have a representative representative survey data. It's really appealing to have a high-frequency measure of, um, of economic, of, of living standards. Now, our, our paper is kind of negative, a little bit negative on nightlights in that we show that they're actually very good at predicting living standards in the cross-section. They're not that good at predicting living standards in the time series, so it's actually hard to use nightlights to see which places are growing and which places which mm-hmm. places are shrinking. Uh, my, my intu- I, we don't know what the reason, what the exact reason is, but my intuition is that night lights are really doing a great job of picking up urbanization, and there are many forms of uh, development that don't map onto like the extensification or increase in brightness of cities. And so, kind of small changes in rural development, I think maybe aren't as aren't as visible in the night lights. Um, but I think that I think there is frontier work in this space using things like daytime imagery that is potentially much more promising. So I think. The idea of using satellites to learn about what's happening on the ground is extremely valuable and likely to be extremely. I mean, it's already been extremely uh, widely used in development. I think it's maybe maybe people have been a little bit overconfident in in using these measures. That's what our paper suggests. But I think that we're you know around the around the corner from uh, next generation version of this using daytime imagery that's going to be going to be much more effective. In fact, our, our
0: research team is working on some of these products as well. I know we're running out of time. I want to touch on one thing that you say here. The poverty mapping exercise exports local heterogeneity in living standards and estimates the potential targeting improvement from allocating programs at the village rather than at the district level. I mean, this is this is a big issue, isn't it? I mean, you you have to get more micro to make a difference, seems to me. Yeah. I
1: my this is this is my intuition that um, the resolution at which the government sees the world is going to be highly relevant for the government's ability to do something about poverty. And if you want to know where the poor people live, the, the variation in poverty is really within district in India, rather than across district. And there have been a lot of programs over the years that have targeted poorer districts and have left out richer districts and if you're a poor person living in a richer district which describes you know a very large share of the poor people in bad shape yeah you, then, then you maybe don't get picked up and so one of the one of the things that we hope comes out of our work with the shrug is basically making it easier for even like local officials like your, your district collector who isn't necessarily a expert research analyst to be able to take data off the shelf from us and kind of understand in higher resolution what's going on in their own district.
0: Yeah. Excellent, Paul. Thanks so much for spending time with me. This has been great.
1: Yeah, this was, is this was great. Thanks for setting it up. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a good one.